the last couple of years, especially in the post 9-11 period, there seems to have been this uh, industry that has started up, not just a counter-terrorism industry, but an industry that looks at what is terrorism, why do people become terrorists, how do they become terrorists, and what can we do to prevent that from happening, assuming, of course, that we want fewer terrorists and not more. In this industry, there have been a whole series of acronyms and workshops and organizations and associations, some private sector, some public sector, sector, some joint in nature. And I think for a lot of people who aren't as well vested in this particular industry, it can sound like a bit of an alphabet soup. To try to work our way around this soup and this amalgam of organizations and causes Especially from a Canadian angle, I'd like to introduce uh, to the podcast an old friend of mine. His name is Mike King. We've, we've known each other for a very long time. He is uh, an old colleague of mine. He's uh, he, We also played hockey together, and he, I'm, I, I fear he scored far too many goals against me in the past. He is also a social psychologist working on violent extremism, radicalization, and CVE, or Countering Violent Extremism. He's the Director of Research for the Organization of Prevention of Violence in Edmonton and a natural professor at the University of Toronto. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Let's start with basic principles, Mike. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, but what was your particular trajectory in that you are from the academic world, and now you find yourself working with a think tank, albeit as a director of research, doing actual CDE. How did you get to this place? Well, uh, yeah, I, I did start somewhat as an academic in so far that I did my uh, PhD in social psychology, uh, I was really interested in understanding how people radicalize to the point of uh, legitimizing the use of terrorism. So um, I did my PhD on that. Um, and during my PhD, I was quite fortunate enough to um, have the government interested in my research. And uh, I don't know if it that's, was that's because I was... Wait, 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 I think, isn't it? I think that was yeah. you were still in the dean. That's right, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I definitely remember, uh, Phil, you, you were definitely someone um, that I, I looked up to uh, a lot Aww. during my PhD. And uh, I was very excited uh, for, you know, meeting you and, um, you know, meeting someone from CSIS was, was terribly exciting for me uh, back in the day. Um yeah. So yeah, the government, you know, became interested. I, I was, I, I do have to qualify though that, you know, very few people were doing uh, psychological research uh, on the topic of terrorism in Canada at that time. So I, I'm not sure if my research was necessarily that good. It might have just been because I was the only one doing it <laughs> that the government was interested. But um, they were. So, you know, I, I was invited to give talks at different departments, including CSIS. And I, I ended up doing a few contracts for CSIS during my PhD, which was um, really fun. And at the end of those, um, the folks that had contracted me said, listen, when you're done your PhD, uh, we'd like to hire you, which was a great motivator for me to finish. That's <laughs> your PhD. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was very lucky because, you know, a lot of my fellow PhDers, you know, had to go on to do a postdoc or, or apply right. for a, a gazillion academic jobs. And, and I didn't have to do that. I, I knew I had something really exciting at the end of my PhD waiting for me. Yeah, it's funny. You are bringing back memories here. And uh, I was going to joke that, you know, you, you you looked up to me at CSIS. And now that you come to know me, you think, who the hell is this guy? And why did I look up to him in the first place? Um, 
I referred in the introduction, Mike, to this kind of alphabet soup when it comes to uh, CVE, uh, counter-erotic extremism. There's PVE, there's counter-eroticalization, there's uh, de-eroticalization. I mean, there seems to be all these terms floating out there. C can you walk us through um, in, a, in a very easy to understand way, what, what are all these programs and are they really different? Well, we'll, we'll set aside the whether or not they're actually effective for late, maybe later on, but just just walk us through what do all these things mean and what, what are the claims that they're putting forward? Yeah, there certainly are a lot of acronyms floating around. Different countries will use <laughs> different acronyms or, or different terms altogether. Here in Canada, we talk a lot about CRV, countering radicalization leading to violence. In the States now, they're increasingly moving towards uh, countering targeted violence. So it's a bit broader than um, like terrorism or, or mm. violence that is perpetrated because of an ideology. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it's super useful to go over all the acronyms. I, I guess what I would suggest is kind of a main distinction between two things. So, you know, in all these programs that are that, that claim to try and prevent um, terrorism, you can group them into two large categories. So first, there's early prevention, right? So early prevention is really a collection of initiatives that is kind of aimed at a broad audience and is trying to reach people before they radicalize. So that's the important right. thing. It's they're, right. they're not targeting people that are radicalized. They're really looking to inoculate people so that if they, for example, come uh, in contact um, or come across violent extremist ideologies online or, or with people or whomever, um, they will not get sucked into it. They, they will not find it appealing and whatnot. So, you know, these are kind of these, you know, um, prevent hate initiatives, talking about the, the dangers of these violent ideologies, all the harms that, that this can cause. So that's early prevention. You use the word inoculate, Mike, and of course, we're in the COVID period here where we're you know, inoculating whole populations to prevent it. So is it the same principle that there's, do people really think there's some, there's some generic inoculation that could be given so that when people, as you said, are either willingly or unwillingly exposed to these types of ideas that they're somehow immune from them? Is that sort of where we're going with this? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, and, and I think, you know, if you want to draw out that parallel with vaccination, you know, vaccines are not 100% effective. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's the same thing with these more psychological inoculations. You know, if, if you, well, yeah, if you can prepare people for what they might hear and the dangers that, that are associated with it, um, you're going to probably, um, inoculate for real, um, you know, a substantial amount of people, but you might not inoculate everyone. So, um, okay. You know, as you know, human behavior, human psychology is very, very complicated. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. But mm -hmm. by and large, it's something that is probably helpful. And I say probably because there's a lot of research on the effectiveness of these early prevention programs. And to be quite honest, um, the data doesn't really substantiate their effectiveness. So it doesn't always work. And in some cases, early prevention programs can cause more harm than good. Oh, wow. 
Oh, wow. So there, in other words, not only is it, is there a one-to-one -one relationship between the programs and, and the goal, which is to prevent people from adopting these ideas in the first place, it can actually get worse. Do you, do you find, and I know you're going to talk about sort of the other side of the coin, which is sort of once people become radicalized, in that sense, then, has, has there been an honest dialogue amongst these various practitioners around the world about the usefulness of continuing? Or as you say, is it something we sort of, we need to do anyway, we'll do the best job we can, but we need to recognize that it's not a perfect solution. Yeah, I guess it's a bit of both. I think people are increasingly recognizing the dangers and the potential harms associated with early prevention programs. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people raising awareness among those who want to launch or, or try and operate such programs. And, and to be clear, you know, a lot of the harm associated with this stuff is um, is about stigmatizing specific mm. communities. Right. So, you know, you got some programs that have the best of intentions, but uh, for example, we'll, we'll choose a community and say, listen, um, your community is more at risk mm. for terrorism, which is not necessarily true, but um, by doing that and targeting a specific community with a counterterrorism prevention program, you're basically telling that community and everyone else that these people are more at risk, that they are more potentially dangerous, and which can cause, you know, a whole sort of, you know, un unintended consequences, such as, you know, um, greater stigmatization of yeah. these folks within the broader community. Um, you're you know, promoting stereotypes, um, supporting prejudice, and, you know, that itself can engender the very radicalization you're trying to prevent amongst these people. Well, let's face it, you know, we're, let's, let's call it what it is here, right? We're really talking about Muslim communities in the West. This, these are the ones that have been targeted, especially since 9-11, because, well, it's true that the, the vast majority of actual terrorist plots and cases in the West over the past 20 years have been from Islamist extremists, not exclusively, but mostly, and hence that's where the attention has gone. So this, these communities, I've seen them firsthand myself, why are you just talking to us? Why aren't you talking to the Polish Canadians or the Italian Canadians or the whatever Canadians? Why is it that we get all the attention? So I can understand certainly why there's this sense of stigmatization amongst those communities. Yeah, I, I, I've certainly seen that. And you're absolutely right. A lot of the stigmatized communities are Muslim communities. But I've also seen more, you know, more broadly, people, again, with the best of intentions saying, listen, we're going to um, try and develop a CVE programs for just uh, immigrants. You know, basically saying, you know, or, or assuming that somehow being an immigrant to Canada, you're more likely to engage in violent extremism, which is, you know, as, as you and I know, not the case, right? There's right. Most people who've engaged in terrorism in the West have been people who are, are born and raised in the very country that um, they are looking exactly. to attack. So, um yeah, you know, there, there's still a lot of education that has to be done among CVE practitioners, I think, for these, you know, CVE initiatives. So so that's sort of the, the before phase. Now, you said there were two parts to this. The other phase, yeah. and I'm assuming, is once people have already identified or demonstrated signs that they are going down a pathway that's going to end badly. So what is it about, What? how would you group that second uh, that second tier? Yeah, exactly. So I, I usually refer to those initiatives as interventions because that's what they're okay. basically doing, right? So, you know, in contrast to early prevention, which is aimed at like broad population, 
Here, we're targeting the intervention for one individual, or it could be, you know, a small group or a family that is involved in violent extremism. And that can range from, you know, um, having a kid in a basement watching, you know, uh, neo-Nazi propaganda, being interested and curious about this stuff, and then the family um, learns about it and they can call a CVE program and then there is an intervention done with that child. And by intervention, I mean, you know, health and social service professionals mm -hmm. who will deliver direct services to that uh, youth in this example or, you know, a specific person or family that uh, is involved in violent extremism. Now, the, of course, the question then comes up at this point, Mike, and you, you know, obviously you're going to see my biases and maybe some of your previous biases as well, but we're talking about a situation that can end very badly in the sense that if somebody has already drunk the Kool-Aid, they can go on to plan actual acts of violence that may kill innocent civilians. So within this targeted intervention, as you use the term, is there a space there for law enforcement, security intelligence, or does that complicate things and, and make it less likely to succeed? Well, I'm really glad you're asking that because I think that is something that is not totally um, figured out yet in Canada, especially, but I think also in, in the West more broadly. There's a lot of people who I've talked to in, in police and in security services here and in other countries that have this basic assumption that, you know, CVE intervention, and I will, you know, mostly talk about the intervention space, not about early prevention, but right. the intervention space is mutually exclusive from CT investigations. So, um, yeah, it, it it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. And I don't fully understand why people have come up with this assumption. Um, I think we can very much have in parallel uh, a CV intervention. So as I you know, explained earlier, some health and social service professionals who deliver direct services to an individual to kind of reduce their vulnerabilities, to try and disengage them from the violent extremist ideology and put them back on the right path of a you know, more pro-social life. At the same time as having a CT investigation to ensure public safety, right? Those things can coexist. Now, the important thing that has to happen here is a firewall between both of them, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. your CT right. investigation cannot try and gather information from the CVE program. Like CT right. investigators should not be going to, let's say, the social workers, the, the, the psychologists, or the mentors that are involved in the CVE program, because then um, well, all, you know, all sorts of bad things can happen there. First of all, you know, um, social workers, psychologists, they have a professional code of conduct. They cannot... Uh, break confidentiality, except in a, a few difficult cases and, and or not difficult, but in a few um, uh, rare, uh, exceptional or problematic uh, instances, um, such as let's say the person is, is planning violence, then of course you can you can break confidentiality, but uh, you know bar that. Um, you know, they should not, cannot um, disclose what is going on with their right. client. Yeah. And if anybody in the community 
assumes that these programs are really just fronts for the security service and law enforcement. There goes there goes any kind of there goes any kind of trust. Uh, the reputation of the program is in tatters, and who who the heck would talk to anybody from a a public health or a psychology background if the assumption was you're just going to report all your information to CSIS, the RCMP anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing I was going to bring up. Like if there's any sense that uh, there's cooperation between, um, you know, CT police and the CVE program, then the credibility of that program, you know, goes down the drain. But also uh, the whole notion of CVE as a whole can can just be put into question. So you're absolutely right. And I can speak to that personally when I, you know, before I retired from the federal government, when I was still at CSIS, I was actually at Public Safety Canada, excuse me, and the National Security Director and did outreach programs with public safety. And it was decided that I would not self-disclose as being part of CSIS because if I get up there and start talking and people say, well, CSIS is here, the assumption is this person's here to collect intelligence against us and is not here to help. So I, I can certainly identify with that. The difficulty, I think, in that relationship. Uh, let's move, Mike, to your, what you're actually doing with the, the the organization at Edmonton. Maybe you could walk us through the organization itself, what its goals are, and, and some of the, the research and findings you've had out of the efforts of the program. So the, the NGO I work with that is based in Edmonton is called the Organization for the Prevention of Violence. Um, you know, we do a, a host of, of different activities. Uh, I can break it down probably into like four main activities. So we do community outreach and engagement. So um, some of us, you know, go out and talk to folks in the communities about the warning signs of, of violent extremism and what you can do about it. And um, and increasingly what we've been doing in the past couple of years is helping communities uh, in the aftermath of like a hate incident or, or a terrorism incident, what they what they can do and, and how to help their community members. We also engage in training. So uh, we have some folks who go out and train mostly government people and police on uh, violent extremism, uh, what it is, how to recognize it and what you can do about it. We also do research, uh, and I'm the director of research there. So we mainly produce reports that um, inform CV practitioners, so the you know health and social service professionals that are on the front lines, trying to uh, steer individuals away from violent extremism. Well, you know they can go and and, and get some resources from from us on um, you know certain ideologies or, or certain best practices. But uh, I think the thing we're most well known for is our intervention program. So we do operate an intervention program that is called Evolve. Uh, We have a fantastic intervention team. We have a forensic psychologist. We have two social workers. We have um, an imam who can work with jihadists. We have two former right-wing extremists who can uh, work with uh, people who are looking to exit, you know, right-wing extremist movements. And uh, yeah, and and all those folks will deliver, you know, direct services to, to people. So they'll, you know, meet on a regular basis with people and, you know, set goals and, and try to uh, kind of steer them away from, from violent extremism. It sounds fascinating. Now, now, you talked about your role as director of research, Mike. 
is this research because you are from an academic background is this research academically oriented or from use, use the term more practitioner oriented yeah our, our research really aims to be uh for practitioners but it's informed by you know academic research and our own research too so it's really i would say a nexus of of both um you know we we want to make our research applied so that it has you know practical implications we're not mm -hmm. there to just you know um increase the knowledge base for the sake of 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 doing that which is right. more kind of an academic pursuit we're really there to uh produce reports um and and generate knowledge that will help people do their work in the field of countering violent extremism. Now, I imagine for reasons of confidentiality and others, you obviously can't talk about a lot of what you do because the nature of the program, but can you point my listeners to some of the successes you've had in the program so far in terms of interventions? Well, <laughs> I guess it, you know, it depends what you mean by success, but, um, as you can measure it for now, I mean, we know that there's no absolute 100% guarantee. You yeah. know, the signs may be all that somebody, you're getting to somebody, they're getting the message that, you know, what was I thinking? I won't do this. And yet, you know, six months down the road, all of a sudden you're dealing with body parts or something because the guy's gone off on a rampage. I understand that. But insofar as you can, you can point and say, well, we seem to have had an effect here. Can, can you talk to that at all? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, there's a few ways probably we can um, demonstrate some form of success. You know, one is, you know, we hear it directly from participants in, in our CV intervention program, right? So people are saying that they they feel like we're, we're really helping put their lives back together. Uh, and we, we see that they are, you know, disengaging from violent extremism. So they're no longer um, kind of involved in the networks or, or, you know, consuming this stuff online or they're chain or they're, they're even de-radicalizing. Also, we see, you know, changes in their ideological beliefs. They're questioning the, the violent extremist ideology that they used to espouse. Um, and they want, you know, a different life. So, so we're seeing it, um, with the, the, the clients themselves. We're also seeing it from the community. So people, um, are referring clients to us, families are reaching out to us, community groups are reaching out to us, which means that, you know, they view us as a, a like I said, trusting, uh, effective partner in this fight against violent extremism. And we're also seeing it from, you know, law enforcement and the courts, you know, we're getting clients from law enforcement um, and we're also getting clients from the courts. So in, in some instances, we do have mandated uh, participation in our program. So the courts will put out in their conditions on someone that, um, you know, if, if you don't want to do jail time, these are the conditions you have to do. Um, and one of them is to... Um, participate in the evolve program and we've also seen that with parole so individuals who are uh who were in jail for terrorism offenses you know are, are then granted parole and one of the parole conditions is to be with us so i think that's you know another marker of you know success quote unquote where you know the the, the system does trust us to to be doing decent work no, it sounds like you guys are doing great. So congratulations on, on the accomplishment front. Unfortunately, Mike, you know as well as I do that anything that you do or analogous programs around the world do are subject to 
whatever is perceived as a failure. And, uh, you know, last week, of course, there was a, a, an MP in the United Kingdom who was stabbed to death by a, I guess, a constituent, you could say. He was a, a Somali, um, British citizen of Somali heritage. And it turns out this man had been on the radar of PREVENT. So PREVENT is kind of the UK's early warning system for identifying people at risk of radicalization, as you said, to give them counseling, variety of professionals, et cetera. And now there's all these questions being asked. There's being reviews of PREVENT and people saying, well, like, what the hell? I mean, you've got this program. It's being funded significantly. PREVENT's been around, I think, since the mid-2000s, the wake of the 7-7 tax of 2005. And here we have this very high-profile killing of an MP, the third MP that's been targeted in the past couple of years, this time by an Islamist extremist. And people are saying, well, why do we, why are we are funding these programs if they're not working? So when, when something like this happens, what effect do you think are, are the sort of the uh, add-on effects to what's happening here in Canada and elsewhere? Is this, does this really undermine all these efforts when, when it, when it goes wrong? I mean, people, don't, as they always say, Mike, you know, in national security, you're only as good as your last failure. Nobody cares when you get it right. They only want to blame you if you get it wrong. Is this a case of CVE getting it wrong in the UK? Well, that's uh, that's a big question, and it raises so many different issues that I I, I want to try and address here. So so let me try this, okay? Probably going to. Well, in, in fairness, there are a lot of details that we're not aware. Of. I mean, you yeah. know, I'm, be, I'm being a little bit provocative here, but it is getting a lot of attention now. There, there's probably all kinds of million you know details that we don't we're not aware of that have an implication on this. But broadly speaking, it, it is it is drawing attention to these types of programs. Oh, oh, absolutely, and and I think one detail that's worth highlighting is you know Ali Harbi Ali, who's who's the alleged perpetrator, right? He was referred to the the Channel Program. So the Channel right. Program in the UK is is kind of a a sub program of Prevent, and it's really right. the intervention program, right? But um, you know, Mr. Ali was referred to that in 2014. So that was seven years ago when he was wow. a teenager. Now, I'm not sure when he was discharged from the program, but it's probably safe to assume that it was, you know, several years or probably many years before he conducted this attack. Right. right. So, you know, what does that all mean? So, yes, he was involved in the channel program, he was involved in a CVE program. When I look at this, what I see is that, you know, some extremists will unfortunately kind of always remain extremists. There are going to engage in some form of recidivism. And there's unfortunately a small proportion of these people that um, are not going to change. There's nothing much you can do. And we've seen that in many other countries. We've seen that here in, in Canada too, right? Where, yes. you know, where regardless of the intervention you're doing on these individuals, which it could be CVE, but it also could be, you know, arrest, prosecution, and imprisonment, like we've seen with Ali Deary, who I know you're yeah. well aware of, who was <laughs> yeah. of the Toronto 18, right? He was arrested for his involvement in that terrorism plot. He went to jail, but a year after going to jail, he, um, he fled Canada and uh, went to Syria, Iraq to join the jihad over there and died. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's people like him, like Ali Deary, like uh, Ali Harbi Ali in the UK, who probably are just never going to really be rehabilitated. Right. Okay. Now, to return, however, to, you know, your your main question about, well, what does this say about the efficacy of, of CVE programs? <laughs> As I said, there's a lot there. First, I think, is the issue of expectations, right? That you're, yeah. you've kind of pointed to, right? 
there's no human service program, CVE or otherwise, that can have a 100% success rate. Right. And, and and I get it, right? Like the CVE is a high stakes program, right? Um, that it could, you know, lead to some, well, it's not going to lead, but it, it, it may fail to prevent terrorism, people dying. But, you know, even though it's high stakes, it's just not realistic to expect a hundred percent success rate, right? There's a lot of other human service programs dealing with other issues uh, where people die. So you can think of, for example, suicide prevention, um, addiction programs too. You know, there's a lot of people involved or, or, or suffering from addiction that go on to cause harm or kill people or, or, um, or die by suicide. And, and they might try addiction programs um, and, and it might not work, Right. There's not a 100% success rate um, for addictions or, as I said, suicide prevention programs or domestic violence programs. So I guess that would be the first thing I would like to say is that it's just not a realistic expectation. Now, the thing with this expectation, though, is it kind of leads to, you know, this kind of faulty logic that if it's not going to work for absolutely everyone, then we right. shouldn't apply it to anyone. Anyone, exactly. Yeah. Well, that doesn't really make sense, right? It's still right. going to help a lot of people. And we can go back to, I guess, what we opened the podcast with was, you know, this the the parallel with COVID, right? COVID vaccines are 90% effective. Should we throw them out because they're not 100% effective? Obviously not, right? Well, it's the same yeah. thing with CVE. It might not help absolutely everyone, but it will help a lot of people. And we could do, I guess, you know, I think your analogy is a really good one. You know, CT investigations don't always prevent terrorism, right? But it's not because we've had several attacks in Canada that we should be closing down CSIS in the RCMP. You know, the RCMP and CSIS have been very successful in preventing a lot of bad things from happening, but unfortunately some stuff is going to, you know, get through the cracks. It's not, we're, we're dealing here with you know, unpredictable human behavior, very complex, multifaceted behavior. You can't prevent everything from happening. This is why I like you as my friend, Mike. You pointed out some really good good points, I think, about realistic expectations. And you know as well as I do, unfortunately, the bad apple spoils the bunch, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use. When these things happen, fingers get pointed. Like I said, when you work in security intelligence, as I did for more than three decades, uh, and something goes wrong, as you said, a CT investigation doesn't succeed. Think of Nathan Cirillo, who was killed. Actually, it's the anniversary today. It was uh, seven years ago that Patrice Vincent was killed in Montreal by a Jihadi, uh, Martin Kutuhulo, who was actually part of an intervention program in Montreal, he was spoken to, and uh, he had tried to convince the Montreal police and, and various organizations that, you know, he had seen the light, he wasn't like this this guy anymore, and lo and behold, a few weeks later, he killed Patrice Vincent in a shopping mall, and uh, so you're right, uh, there's no absolute guarantee of success, but we it's simply unfair to expect that, make that kind of expectation of these programs. So I, I think you've raised some really good points today, Mike, about the programs that, uh, that are out there, the, uh, the challenges. Um, 
these are good initiatives. They're not perfect, but then again, nothing else is. And and also, I'm also going to point my listeners to to your program in Edmonton and, and what you're part of and, and the successes there. So, um, listen, Mike, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm, I got a sneaking suspicion we could have talked about this for days, but I do want to thank you for taking the time to come on the program and, and walk us through what CVE is all about and what the challenges are. So, so thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, Phil. It was a, it was a great pleasure. And uh, let me know if you want to chat again. I'm sure I'll be bringing you back. So that was my conversation with Mike King. What do you think about his analogies about sort of you know, what CV is about and the fact that even if it doesn't help everyone, it helps a lot of people. You can provide with your feedback and give me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content, you can subscribe to it. Go to borealisthreatenrisk.com, hit the subscribe button. You get all the podcasts and blogs free of charge. It's also a link to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from the Federation of the Present. You want to get it through the website as it's self-published, $25 Canadian plus shipping and handling. Love to hear from you. you hear from me again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>